Um, good morning, everybody. My name's Tom. I'm the Minister of St. John's, if we haven't met before. It'd be lovely to connect with you in some way. And um, uh, at face value, I think the words we've just heard from one Peter, Peter's first letter that we've been going through this term, I think they're about as unwoke as you can get, I, I, I would think. If you don't know what woke means, you almost certainly aren't it. Um, but in days gone by, we talked about political correctness. Um, but I think these words for some may well raise hackles, confirm suspicions, cause fear. Um, whenever we read God's word, it's important to acknowledge we always come with our own preconceptions, our own misconceptions. And it's really important not to assume that we know what the text says and the text means before we've really looked at it properly, because otherwise we're not letting God speak. So I'd invite you to do the same with this this morning and with this sermon. You may think, oh, I know what he's about to say. And or you may be wondering what on earth I am going to say from these verses. Um, but we come to this believing the Bible is God's word, believing he speaks clearly into our lives today through his words. And these words are here for our good and for our benefit because he loves us. But of course, any talk particularly of uh, slavery and submission and people being subject to others um, also takes us into what could be painful territory for some. So we need to listen to very carefully to what God through Peter is saying and what he isn't saying through these verses. So I apologize if this, go, if this is slightly longer this morning than I would normally aim to speak for in an online context. We're trying to make things a bit more brief and snappy than we would do in church. And I know it's even harder to concentrate in this medium. There's so many more distractions. Let's try and minimize the distractions. Um, but I'm concerned in a number of ways with a passage like this not to be misheard and to speak as clearly as I can. And that does take a little bit of time to do. So let's pray for God's help as we do this. Let me pray now. Father God, please help me to speak clearly, to be faithful to what you, as our good Heavenly Father, are saying to us through these words. Help us to listen to you, especially uh, when this may raise issues of pain or confusion. Thank you that you are a good shepherd and a loving overseer of our souls. And so help us to listen to you now. Amen. Well, at the heart of these verses is the principle of submission, of being subject to another person. And we won't understand these verses unless we can distinguish between two different types of submission. This is absolutely critical to understanding what on earth Peter means. See, on the one hand, in our world today, we're often confronted with unwilling, enforced submission. So we think of the, the horrific death of George Floyd, who was forced to submit for eight minutes and 46 seconds by a police officer kneeling on his neck, and then he died. And protesters have been taking the knee around the world in solidarity with victims of that kind of enforced submission and violence at the hands of tyrants and dictators and slave owners and violent husbands and partners. But there is another type of submission, which is freely and voluntarily offered. 
So in between talking about slaves and marriages, and, and let's be clear, this is about slaves. I know the ESV, which is usually really helpful in these things, it translates it servant. It's a, it's a slave that lives in a house. That's really what that word in verse 18 means. This is talking about slaves. And um, so slaves and then marriages. In between, Peter turns to talk about Christ. Can you see that in verses 21 to 25? You really need the reading in front of you this morning. I really encourage you to have it there. So you're not just listening to my words. You see it in the Bible and compare what I'm saying with this. But verses 21 to 25 um, gives us the, the example we really need to get clear on. In Christ, you see, Jesus, uh, Peter says, we see someone who was totally in control and had done nothing wrong, was entirely innocent, and yet willingly and freely he submitted and he suffered. He submitted to the will of his father. So Jesus is the key to this entire passage. And that means if, you, if you're not really yet clear on who Jesus is and what he did and what it means to follow him, well, you need to get clear on that and understand that. And, and that's why we're running that course in a couple of weeks time, starting Tuesday, the 30th of June, Christianity in a nutshell. Well, we want to talk about Jesus and what it meant for him to do these things in this passage but we need to be to be clear on that or we haven't got a hope of understanding what he's saying to slaves and what he's saying about marriages when he says slaves be subject or submit to your masters and wives be subject or submit to your own husbands if we don't understand about Jesus we won't get that so we're going to take each of these commands that Peter gives in turn to slaves to wives and then to husbands but at each stage we need to get the link to Jesus. So first of all, slaves be subject to just and unjust masters. Verses 18 to 25. Slaves be subject to just and unjust masters. Now, I think for many of us, as we read this in verse 18, we, we want to know how can Peter even countenance the concept of slavery in the first place? Isn't it just embarrassing to, to read this? Well, it's worth remembering that, that slavery in the ancient world was often different from the hideous examples that we're more familiar with from the, you know, the 18th, 19th centuries. Um, it, was a, it was a fact of life in all known societies in the ancient world for a start. Um, in, in the Roman world, you might be born into it. You might sell yourself into it. If you ran out of money, you might buy yourself out of it if you got the money to do that. Sometimes you might just be freed by a generous master. And very importantly, slavery in the ancient world, and particularly here in this context, it wasn't a racial thing. So unlike in the Atlantic slave trade, in the ancient world, skin colour wasn't a factor in who was a slave and who wasn't. And actually, slavery underpins the whole way that society operated. In the same way that today, we would say machines and machinery underpin our society. Um, and uh, it, it, actually the slaves in those times were doing the kinds of jobs we now look to machines to do for us. And, you know, for example, today we rely hugely, as we all know, on fossil fuels to drive our daily lives. So if we say to Peter, you know, Peter, why don't you tell the churches and the Christians to end the practice of slavery when it's so obviously a, a bad thing for human beings who are all equal in God's sight? Well, I, I think we just need to realise that would have been like churches today telling all their members to kind of scrap their cars overnight 
you know, we, we, we might all agree in principle that it would be better to do that in the end, but clearly in practice, doing that overnight is going to lead to all kinds of unintended consequences. It isn't quite that simple. Now, we've seen Peter's concern in this letter to keep things real and practical and grounded. And that's what he's doing here. He's talking to individuals who actually find themselves in these situations. What should they individually do? How should they respond to the situation they're actually in here and now? Not some theoretical other situation that they can't bring about themselves. And last week, we saw the citizen who asks, well, if Jesus is my Lord, do I still need to submit to the state? Answer, yes, though your first duty is always to God. And it's the same thing now. I'm a slave, but Jesus is my Lord. Do I still need to submit to my human master? Peter says, be subject, but not because your master is threatening you, though he might be. He might be good or he might be unjust. Verse 18, but submit with all respect because you're mindful of God. Verse 19, your first allegiance is to him, like the citizen with the state. Your first allegiance is to obey God. And that word uh, respect in verse 18 is literally fear. And in this letter, fear, if you trace it through and look up all the times it comes up, it's always about fearing God and not fearing other human beings. And in fact, in various ways, he says, don't fear human beings, fear God. So Peter's point is do this not because you fear your master, but because you fear God. And that may lead to suffering. But make sure it's not because of sin or wrongdoing, verse 20. But if you suffer while doing good, well, that is a gracious thing. It's a good thing. Because verse 21, this is what it means to follow Jesus. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't fight back. He submitted, but not because he was forced to, but because he had entrusted himself to God. He wasn't being dragged to the cross, kicking and screaming. He voluntarily submitted of his own human will to the will of his father. Now, there's something very subversive about submitting because you're obeying God. We, we, we saw that in the, in the first reading from John chapter 19. Jesus says to Pilate, in effect, he says, I'm submitting to you but you don't have any power over me. You only have this power because it's been given to you from above, verse 11 in, in chapter 19 of John's gospel. And you will answer, the implication is Pilate, you will answer to him who judges justly, even you who think you've got all the authority in this situation. And so for slaves, the point is, if your master is unjust now, he will be judged by a just judge then. But more than that, as, as he talks about Jesus' example, understand that Jesus did this for you. Do you see that uh, in um, uh, verse 21 there? He did this for you. It's really striking that he says this because he's saying, you know, you may be a slave, you may be suffering unjustly, but you need to know Jesus died for you. Even you slaves need a saviour and you have one. In Jesus Christ. By his wounds you have been healed. He's quoting that famous passage in Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. You were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That means that your ultimate master is not your human boss who orders you around. Your ultimate master is a, a shepherd who, who oversees your soul with care and tenderness 
as one who has himself suffered and conquered sin and death. So trust him even as you endure unjust suffering like he did and submit willingly because you are following Jesus's example. Now, even in saying this, can you see Peter is actually laying down the foundations for later generations of Christians to pick up the baton and bring about the end, for example, of the Atlantic slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries? Because for a slave to, to submit to their master in a truly free way, like Jesus submitted to his father, if that's going to happen, a slave needs to be free. Can you see that? It's a slightly subtle point, but by using Jesus who willingly submitted as a picture, the seeds are being sown here. Peter is implying that slavery is not how things are meant to be. Jesus wasn't a slave because slaves can't always willingly submit. But he's also saying, even when you are forced to submit, if you're really in that situation that you can do nothing about, well, subvert your master's authority by submitting like Jesus submitted. Now today, although the Atlantic slave trade has ended, uh, modern slavery we know is still a thing, don't we? And it even happens, tragically, right under our noses here in London. Uh, whether we're talking about prostitution or nail bars or, or, or whatever it might be. And Christians should, be, should surely be known for standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And, and, and where we can do something about the unjust situations we find ourselves in, we certainly should. I think that's really important to see here. As he speaks to a slave, he is literally talking to somebody who cannot get remove themselves from this situation. The times when we find ourselves in that kind of situation today are, are very rare, mercifully. And normally there is something we can do. We may not want to do it, but there are charities who help people um, in these situations. We're going to think a bit more about that specifically in the area of uh, wives and husbands a bit later. But to the, to the person forced to submit or treated unfairly and unjustly, maybe we, could, we, you know, we do experience that in different ways at work, at school. Peter says, well, you know, when that's happening to you, look to Jesus. Know that he suffered unjustly too and he did it for you so you can trust him and endure. That is Peter's message here. Then he turns to wives. Now, if you're not married, uh, it will be tempting to switch off at this point because you think, well, this isn't speaking to me. But actually, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul links marriage to the gospel. And he shows how the gospel shapes marriage, but marriage also points to the gospel. It's a window on what the gospel looks like. And we're going to see how that works. But that means that even though you may not be married yourself, understand that marriage is still a visual aid to help you know and understand Jesus better. So we all need to hear and understand this. It's a sort of illustration of the gospel for us, a living illustration that some of us live out in our lives and others watch other people doing it. But it is still a, an illustration of the gospel, whether you're married or not. So here's the second thing we need to understand. Wives, be subject to Christian and non-Christian husbands. And slaves, be subject to just and unjust masters. Wives, be subject to Christian and non-Christian husbands. Now, it's the same principle. Can you see verse, uh, the first word of chapter three, likewise? And that's very important because it keeps Jesus's example that he's just spelt out in the end of the previous chapter. That is front and center. 
to what he's saying to wives. He's not talking about women in general submitting to men in general. He's talking about something very specific. He's talking about a wife submitting to her own husband. And that's very important, that word own husband. This isn't a question of worth or value. Um, we, we see that later in the instruction to husbands where he says wives and husbands are heirs together of the grace of life, verse 7. We, we are on the same footing. We are equal before God, but we have different roles to play. And again, submission in this context can be willing or it can be unwilling. And if we're following Jesus's example, the ideal is willing submission, not unwilling submission. In Ephesians chapter 5, again, Paul says, submit, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And husbands, lay down your lives for your wives as Christ laid down his life for the church. This isn't therefore just a cultural thing. It's grounded in how God has set up both marriage and the gospel. So again, as I said at the start, if we don't get who Jesus is and what he did, this isn't going to make any sense because Jesus submitted to his father's will and Jesus laid down his life and in that sense he modeled the role of both wives and husbands in different ways as we will see in a moment which is why Peter keeps using the word likewise verse one and likewise for husbands verse seven still linking back to Jesus's example now some people say well should we not be arguing for an end to any concept of submission in marriage in the 21st century, you know, after we've ended slavery, doesn't the same apply here with husbands and wives? But again, we need to look very carefully at what kind of submission we're talking about. What we should be arguing against very strongly is unwilling and enforced submission, which is what slavery involves. But in marriage, that wouldn't apply to healthy regular marriage actually that would be that would amount to domestic abuse and so we, we, we need to say this loud and clear um, these verses are not saying to a wife or, or to a husband for that matter put up with your spouse abusing you violently or in any other way emotionally sexually um, you know, Peter has made it clear in the previous verses verses 13 to 17 that we are to submit to the ruling authorities and in this country and many others, domestic violence, physical abuse, other types of abuse are illegal, plain and simple. And so it's clear anybody who finds themselves in that kind of situation can and should call the police. Now, I, I don't know who's watching this today, and this is one of the strange things about doing things online, who might be watching or, or listening to this in the future. But I want to point anybody who might find it helpful to an organization called restored relationships restored relationships and if you go to restoredrelationships.org you will find it's a christian charity that is aimed at helping people who find themselves in a situation where uh, they're in an abusive relationship with somebody but i'm not just going to point to that we're now going to watch a short video before we return and carry on looking at these verses we're going to um corin is going to key up a, a short video for us which is about the work of this charity it's about three minutes long but just so that we are really clear what we are and aren't saying about these verses let's watch this video together before we um carry on in the uk one in four women will suffer abuse one of the biggest barriers of working with the church is 
the sort of disbelief that it could happen here, not in my church. Maybe that one down the road, but not in my church. Everything seemed really good until we actually got married and he very rapidly became abusive. For a long time I didn't recognise what was happening was abuse. Uh, he was putting me down, he was pushing and shoving, um, he was making vague threats but then he punched a hole in the bedroom door two inches from my face and said next time it's your face and then two weeks later it was. It made me realise that he was only ever going to get worse so I had to go. It took a while for me to work up the courage to say anything to anyone. People in my church had no clue what to do next. Just no clue. A woman will be abused 35 times before she access help and support. So it's really important that if a woman speaks to somebody in the church that they are believed, because that might be the first time that they felt able to disclose that abuse. It's no respecter of age, no respecter of wealth, no respecter of nationality, religion, anything. It, any woman can suffer domestic abuse. Women in this country are dying because they're women in abusive relationships at the rate of two every week. I think as a man you can be an advocate by looking at our First Man Standing program, by simply choosing to be an example of a man who refuses to allow misogynistic attitudes. Men within the church need to stand up and say, we're part of the problem, we must be part of the solution, working in partnership with women around the globe. It's particularly important for this younger generation to be more proactive in fighting violence against women because statistics show that the 16 to 24 um, age group is actually the most likely to be affected by violence by a partner. Those cycles of violence have um, effects for the whole of the rest of their lives, whether that's the first abuse age 16 and how that relates to different relationships that they have growing up and the way that they might think about marriage and the influence that that can have on their children as well. Restored really works with and through the church to end violence against women, so we provide training for churches. We advocate to government and at the United Nations. So ways that you can get involved with Restored is download our church pack, it's free. Educate yourself of what is domestic abuse. Get training for your churches. Ask us to come in and train your church on how to respond well when domestic abuse is disclosed. Put up some toilet door posters in the back of the women's toilets so that women know that actually this is a safe space, that this church knows about domestic abuse. And finally, give to Restored. We operate and survive on people that give to us on a regular basis. We can make a difference. We can end violence against women. This is a solvable issue. Um, so hopefully we, we are clear. Um, Jesus is saying to wives, submit to your husbands. But what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean submit unwillingly and because you've been forced to do so, especially through, through violence and coercion. That, that isn't what Jesus did as he submitted willingly and out of love for his father. And it's not what he calls us. It's not what he calls you to do. More positively, though, he has some words of encouragement for uh, wives in particular situations. Win your husbands, he says, and in particular, he's thinking about a non-Christian husband. Uh, win your husbands with your actions and not your words. Can you see that in verse, uh, uh, verses one and two? Um, you know, the, the person who knows you better than anyone else in the world will know whether what you are saying is for real. So, so live out the gospel 
with respectful and pure conduct. Now, again, that word for respect is the same as what it was for slaves in verse 18. And I think in the letter, this is about respect for God, fear of God. Um, not that you are to sort of fear and be frightened. And actually, verse 6, he, do you see that? He says, do not fear anything that is frightening. So um, God willing, that isn't going to be how one might feel about one's husband. Um, but if it is, he's saying, respond with fear of God. And I think from what we've just seen, that might mean in some circumstances, uh, phoning the police, bringing restored relationships. But in, in healthy circumstances, it doesn't mean that. In healthy circumstances, it may still mean uh, maybe a woman has come to faith after marriage or there's, another, there's, there's other circumstances with a non-Christian husband. And Peter is saying, live out the faith, win with your life. Uh, and they will see if your faith is for real. Now, of course, some, some wives live with non-Christian husbands, and it's often that way around, although sometimes it's the other way around, um, for years and years, and, and nothing seems to change, and that can be desperately painful. Um, but like anything in the Christian life, trusting Jesus and depending on him for daily circumstances can be painful. And, and, and people have, have different ways in which they struggle with things. Some people struggle with singleness. Some people struggle with uh, the fact that, they, that, that, that they've been um, abandoned or deserted by a spouse. Um, others live in a relationship that for one reason or another is painful. Um, but we are called as Christians to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And sometimes that means walking through situations that are not easy to deal with day by day. But... That is why we have one another in the church. We need to share those burdens with one another so that we can be honest with each other, pray for one another. So we're not alone as we struggle with these things. So win with our lives, not our words. And, and um, I think these verses on clothing and uh, jewellery and things, you know, do sound a, a bit odd to our ears in the 21st century. Uh, but he's simply saying, don't manipulate with outward superficial beauty Focus on beauty on the inside. God looks at the heart. Um, like, I, 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 you know, clearly, we're getting into sort of deep and very unwoke waters. But I, I don't think this is saying don't ever wear jewellery or don't ever wear makeup. You know, think of godly and beautiful Queen Esther in the Old Testament, for example. Um, but in, in this context, the point is don't use these things to manipulate don't use these things out of fear or insecurity. Fear, again, is the big thing, isn't it? Not fearing anything that is frightening, fearing God and living for him. And that means that the beauty that really matters is on the inside. And he gives these examples of Sarah and Abraham and the women of the, of the past. And, and actually, as he refers to Sarah and Abraham, it's clear that he, he is talking about Christian and non-Christian husbands that, that, that women in the churches might have. And, and by the way, by, by giving Sarah as an example of willing, godly submission. Well, Sarah was no shrinking violet. We did a series in, in uh, the life of Abraham not too long ago, and uh, Sarah was, was feisty. She was opinionated. Go and read Genesis 18, which is the chapter where this is quoting, that she calls Abraham her master, uh, but look at how she speaks up about the situation that um, she finds herself in. Finds herself in. So that's wives, be subject to Christian and non-Christian husbands. But we do need to get to husbands, finally. Husbands, 
Um, maybe husbands, we've, we've seen this command to the wives and we're mentally tucking it in our back pockets for a rainy day where it can be pulled out and used in evidence for why it's my way or the highway. Tear it up now. It's not for you. It's not for me, that command to the wives. It's for her. And it should never come via you or me to our wives, particularly on, especially on a particular issue. Because that would be to enforce submission when it should be willingly given. And there's another command here to husbands. Not make sure your wives submit. No, it doesn't say that, does it? And if anything, it's way more challenging as we, as we look into it. And I say this as someone who is still learning and doesn't always get this right as a husband. It goes like this. Thirdly, husbands, live and die for the benefit of your wives. Live and die for the benefit of your wives. The, the key word again is likewise. Verse 7. You see, husbands like wives are still learning from the example of Christ. And what did he do with all the authority that he had as God's king, as the one who, if anybody ever deserved to have the whole world submit to him, what did he do with that authority? He used it to die for others. So husbands, that word likewise implies get ready to die for your wife. Live with her in an understanding way, he says. That means work out who she is, what her needs are. Not just does she meet my needs and does she understand me, but do I understand her? Am I serving her? Um, Show honour to her as the weaker vessel. Now, all the woke alarms have gone off multiple times this morning, and here's, here's another one blaring loud and clear. This is simply saying it is generally true that women are physically weaker than men. And we do still believe this today. We we, we do, don't we? Because we still have men and women competing separately in sport. And the issue is that, again, speaking very generally, men have often used their physical superiority to throw their weight around, literally and metaphorically to force their wives and others around them to submit to them, either physically or through force of personality or whatever it might be. Is that what Jesus did? A good question is this. Would you say what you just said to your wife if the crucified Jesus was here in the room with you and watching you while you said that? Would you demand that she, or anybody else for that matter, serve you? Or would you get on your knees and use your strength to serve her? Again, in John chapter 19, we saw that extraordinary scene as Jesus is mocked. And he comes out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And he's utterly humiliated. And Pilate says, with deep, unknowing irony, behold the man. And John's point there is, look, this is manhood. This is a man suffering for others. That is true manhood. And so when Peter says, likewise, verse 7, he's saying, look, this is husbandhood. Don't think that we husbands get an easy ride while we order everyone else around. Not even on Father's Day. Again, speaking generally, men tend towards being either tyrants or abdicators tyrants throw their weight around abdicators just retreat and don't get involved 
neither is living or dying for the benefit of others. They are heirs with you of the grace of life, Peter says. Let there be no doubt. We said it before, we said it again. Husbands and wives are equal in worth and value. The roles may be different that model the gospel, as, as is put, set out clearly in Ephesians 5. But before God, all are equal. And what is riding on this for husbands? Well, only your spiritual well-being and relationship with your heavenly father. So if, if we ignore all this, you see that at the end of verse 7, we ignore all this and carry on in our cave, don't expect to have a flourishing prayer life. Because he takes this seriously. God takes this seriously, and this is what he's calling us to. Now, husbands and wives, we tend to want specific application when we read things like this. You know, who gets to decide where to live? Uh, whose career should take precedence? Um, who, who, who takes the bins out? And I think there's a reason the Bible never spells out those things because if we're married, we have to go and work it out between us. I don't think it's particularly helpful to kind of go and hold up this big detailed list of what it means to be a man and what a marriage should look like. Those things tend to end up actually referring uh, to a, a more sort of conservative culture of the past. But the key thing is to get the principle in place of a husband leading by laying down his life for his wife and a wife committing to submitting to her husband because she submits to Jesus. And then we have to go and have the conversations with one another that work out what that looks like here and now, um, depending on our gifts and our strengths and our weaknesses and so on. Now, some, of course, sometimes we do need help with these things and we can get ourselves into places where we're, you know, we're arguing and we're, we, we can't agree on something. And again, we're not doing this alone. As a church, we can help each other with these things. Maybe lockdown has raised issues that uh, people want to talk about. Get in touch with, you know, with me, Corinne, somebody you trust if you want to talk things through further. And, and also, if something I've said this morning doesn't make sense or you have a question about anything at all, do please get in touch. And I'll be delighted to hear from you and talk further with you. I think that's enough on these verses for now. The point is, we must be appalled at enforced and violent subjection that goes on in the world all around us, uh, whether it's uh, racism or domestic abuse or whatever it might be. Stand up for the oppressed, protest for the vulnerable, get help if you yourself are in an abusive situation. But let's not confuse all of that with living out this beautiful, godly picture of willing free submission and godly other person-centered leadership that is at the heart of the gospel. At work, at home, in our marriages if we're married, in all of life we have a better story than our culture to tell about these things. So let's go and live it. Father God, thank you for these extraordinary words that challenge all of us in different ways. Pray that they would draw us to meditate more on Jesus and what he has done for us in giving himself up, entrusting himself to you who, trusts, who, who judges justly, enduring even unjust suffering. Pray that in our different circumstances, we would do the same and do it for your glory. Amen.